Hello and welcome to Inside Out. It's your girl, Jane Z. Growing up, some of my favorite meals were Saturday night dinners. Being the Chinese-Canadian family we were, we'd make congee and pick up a large pepperoni or Hawaiian pizza from this little pizzeria down the street called Supreme Pizza. I know congee and pizza sounds like a weird combination, but I swear to you, the soupiness of the congee really balances out the grease of the pizza. So I really recommend it if you've never tried. And afterwards, we'd all sit down and watch this Taiwanese variety show on TV. Good times. I was reminded of these meals because in today's episode, I spoke with Chef Chris Spear. One of the topics we discussed was cultural appropriation. Of course, this is much more in a professional context of, say, a restaurant and not just family meals at home. But we talked about what it means to cook food from another culture in an authentic way and who gets to decide what's the quote-unquote best Chinese food or best Mexican food, etc. So Chris is a personal chef based out of Maryland, and over his 30 years of working in food service, he's never actually worked in a restaurant. That is, if you don't count his first job at Burger King. After culinary school, Chris tried getting jobs in well-known restaurants, but was met with a lot of chef egos. So he ended up cooking for retirement communities, which gave better benefits anyway. Since a lot of the clientele in these communities were into fine dining, he got to be really creative in the kitchen. And since dinner was served at 5 p.m., he could wrap up by 7 and still go out after work on Saturday nights. In the food service world, this kind of work-life balance is almost unheard of. And at one point, Chris also got to do R&D at IKEA, of all places. They experimented with lobster meals and dinner and dance events. Turns out they're not just about Swedish meatballs. In his last stint working in a retirement community, Chris stayed on for 10 years, but towards the end, he was pretty miserable. He started getting all kinds of health problems, and after doing some tests, he realized they were all stress-induced. He was managing 125 employees, a lot of whom didn't even want to be there, and one day he even had to fire a drug dealer. Talk about stress at work. So Chris finally bit the bullet and left. And thankfully, by that time, he had already established a presence with his personal chef business, Perfect Little Bites, and he started a Facebook community and now podcast called Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, I know very little about the food industry, and I must say it is an excellent podcast. He brings on really interesting guests. They're very approachable episodes. So if you're curious to learn more about food and cooking, I highly recommend checking out his show after the episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to follow the pod on Apple or Spotify for conversations like this every Tuesday. I'd love to hear what one of your favorite meals is. You can find me on Instagram at Inside Out with Jane. All right, on to the show. This is Inside Out with Jane Z, the podcast that helps you build a thriving business without losing your mind. My name is Jane, and my mission is to help you build and grow your business while having time for the people and things that matter in your life. Join me every Tuesday as I sit down with an entrepreneur who's already building their dream business. We'll walk through their journey, tips for success, and how to mentally prepare for the long road ahead. Because building your dream business and dream life is the long game. And that's what we're all about right here on Inside Out.
Last we spoke, you were about to bake two confetti cakes for your kids' birthdays. How did that go? It went well. I mean, they went with cake mixes. That wouldn't have been my choice, but I think, you know, I'm a chef and you have to concede some things to your kids as much as I would have really loved to make a cake from scratch. It's also pretty easy to just grab a Duncan Hines mix and uh, make some cakes. So confetti cake it was. Did the Sour Patch Kids make it in? The Sour Patch Kids did make it in. We we had to go outside because we wanted to like throw it on the cake. So we went outside and just had like handfuls of Sour Patch Kid pieces and we're just like chucking them on the top and sides of the cake and it was making a mess everywhere. But yeah, it was, it was exactly what we were going for. Sounds like a blast. <laughs> it's delicious. Sugar high for sure. I mean, there's nothing like getting a whole bunch of kids uh, hopped up on sugar and then just having them tear through your house. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Sounds like a perfect birthday party. Yeah. Were you into birthdays as a kid? Oh, yeah. I mean, I loved them. We had a pool, so it was always like a pool party. We never did, you know, these days it's like so expensive. Like parents rent out like an arcade or a fun house or something like that. It's like my parents were like, we spent thousands of dollars on the pool and you're going to have every single birthday party at your pool. So, you know, I have a July birthday, go. so not so bad. But I loved birthday parties when I was a kid. Was it like a barbecue poolside kind of thing? You know, we did everything by the pool. It was usually, you know, hamburgers, hot dogs. Um, sometimes we just get pizza. What I always remember is, you know, you'd have these big bowls of like Cheetos or chips or something and everyone would get out of the pool and stick their hands in there wet. And then, you know, after like three or four kids, you just had this bowl of like wet, messy kind of chip stuff. Oh my God. That reminds me of when I was like six, we had people over for a party and we had these Asian buns. They're like really good and buttery and sweet. And then we also had orange juice and I accidentally dunked my bun into the orange juice, but I tried to trick my friends into thinking that was like a thing. I was like, oh yeah, you have to try it. Of course, none of them believe me. No. So you were the only one who did that then? I was, I was, I was the innovator. <laughs> what are the, a taste maker, right? That's what they call them. Exactly, exactly. So when did you start getting like really into food and thinking like, oh, this can be like something I can be creative with? I mean, I guess, you know, when I was like in high school, I, I didn't know what else I wanted to do. I mean, I'm someone who's always been creative and I always loved food and cooking. I grew up uh, helping my mom cook at home. You know, I took cooking classes in middle school. I think we all had to, but I really enjoyed that. And then when I got to high school as a freshman, I took intro to foods and I, I don't know what else I'd be doing if I wasn't cooking. It's all I ever wanted to do. Do you remember what you made in that foods class in ninth grade? I mean, I remember definitely making chocolate chip cookies. I think that's probably one of the first things you have to make uh, yeah, and making like classic. very easy, quick bread type stuff like zucchini bread. It was really hard because I took it as a freshman and classes were integrated. So my class had a lot of juniors and seniors who were looking for an easy A and didn't want to take it seriously. And I can remember being annoyed, like wanting to learn about this. And in my group were just like a couple stoner seniors who were hoping to just like <laughs> eat some chocolate chip cookies and get an A to pad their GPA. I was like, I really want to like be here and do a good job at this. Yeah, I want to ace this chocolate chip cookie. Definitely. And then when you were 16, you got your first food industry job. Is that right? Yeah, Burger King. It was very glamorous. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't knock fast food. I mean, you have to learn customer service. You learn cash handling. You learn speed. You learn stress management. I mean, there's nothing like 
you know, I would work both morning and night shift, but like when you would get there at six in the morning and you'd have to open it, you know, six 30 or whatever. And you'd see this line of people out the door and just knowing that you're going to have a line of people like all day from the time you unlock the door until eight hours later when you leave, there was a number of days I'd take a lunch break and they'd call you back early because it was so busy or I'd supposed to be off at, you know, like three and my parents would be waiting in the parking lot and I couldn't actually get out of there till like three 30 or almost four because like the line Mm. was just out the door. Um, and that's a lot to deal with, especially at a young age. Wow. I never would have thought about going to Burger King at six in the morning. What's the like, (laughs) what's the McMuffin equivalent of Burger King? Yeah. The the croissant sandwich. Ah, okay. Like a croissant and like ham and cheese or something. Croissant sandwich. They also had the, um, French toast sticks. I don't think McDonald's ever came up. I mean, I guess they had pancakes, right? At McDonald's. Mm. So yeah, it was the the deep fried French toast and their tater tots are like one of my all time favorite. Like I love it. There's a lot Mm. of surface area and they get like super crispy. And if you put extra salt on them, so I, you know, (laughs) ate my share in uh, tater tots at at Burger King. (laughs) Nice. Gotta love tater tots. So I can't imagine Burger King being the reason you wanted to go to culinary school, but, but what was that motivation for you? Yeah. No, I, wa- I wanted to go to culinary school. I worked there because I had a friend who could get me a job. You know, I think one of the hard things when you're a teenager, I don't know, people look down on you like you don't have a work ethic. And I was judged before mm. I even got in the door. Like I applied at a lot of other places. And I remember going to interviews and they would make my mom come with me. Like I went to friendlies and I remember having an interview and just the the manager kind of saying, you know, we've tried this thing with teenagers before and, and they want to go out and party and they're going to be calling out. It's like, you know, I found that really disheartening because I thought I had a good work ethic. I mean, I know I do. And I felt like I was fighting against this big thing of the history of every teenager ever who had screwed them. Um, and it was just really hard to get jobs at the places I wanted to. So this was a place my friend worked at and and got me in the door. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at the time, I grew up always thinking I would go to college. It was the 90s. Like, that's what you did, right? So if I wanted to be in cooking, you would go to culinary school. And, you know, when I was a senior in high school, I think it's about when the Food Network started to come around. So, you know, you started to see the the paths of these chefs and they talked about the culinary schools they went to. So I was like, sure, why not? I guess hmm. I'll go to culinary school. Where'd you end up going? Uh, Johnson & Wales in Providence. You grew up in Western Mass, right? I grew up in Marlboro, so about 40 miles west of Boston, you know, close to Worcester, 20 minutes maybe. So you weren't too far from home for... for No, Providence was like 45 minutes. Like it's easier for me to get into Providence than Boston uh, drive-wise and stuff. And when I went there, I thought I'd maybe be coming home on weekends and stuff. And then when Mm -hmm. once I got to college, I was like, this place is amazing. Like I'm never going home. What was culinary school like? Like, are you just cooking all the time? Do you like start with the basics and have to, you know, perfect poached eggs or, you know, I have all these, these like stereotypical images of what it's like, but what do you remember? Our school was an accredited university, meaning you also had to have like your related classes. So we were broken up into trimesters. Every year you had one trimester of academics in classrooms and then two of labs and it could go in any order. So when I got there, I had academics first. So I had to take basic classes like math and English again, which is very tedious. (laughs) Uh, But then I also had classes like food safety and sanitation, menu planning and design, Uh, We had like a career class where you had to learn how to like write resumes and stuff. And then when you get in the labs, labs are nine days intensive of like one thing. So you get into meat cutting Hmm. and you spend nine days in meat cutting and it's a full, you know, like eight hour day with a lunch break. And then when you're done, it's, you know, nine days of continental cuisine, which is 
I don't know what continental cuisine is, I guess. You know, it was like <laughs> a countries around the world at the time. So it was like one day of like Eastern uh. European and one day it was like French cooking. Uh, but you didn't have a whole class dedicated to that. And then you moved on and like one nine day segment was like bartending. So I did, mm. uh, I have a four year bachelor's in culinary. So it was that same pattern over and over. It was just you had trimesters and it was always one try of academics and two of hands on stuff. Last night, I watched this YouTube video of someone like very, very carefully cutting a bluefin tuna. And it was just like magical how he sliced it. It was like, it looked like a samurai sword. Um, is there a name for like butcher for seafood? I don't know that there is, but it's a very specific thing. So I took this course with Morimoto probably about five years ago. And he even told me things like when they catch a tuna, they put it on a table and it always stays on the same side, whether it be the right side or the left side, because of the weight, there's compression. So the bottom side is mm -hmm. inherently going to become damaged. So the bottom oh. side is less expensive than the top side. You know, that's stuff I wouldn't even think about. But when you get yeah. into cutting fish and doing sushi and things like that, it's so meticulous. I mean, I don't even think I, I learned how to cut fish like that. You know, it was just a very, you know, like couple hours in the course was breaking yeah. down fish. If you're, say, cutting fish for something like sushi, it's a whole nother level. And I'm sure there's all kinds of certifications you can get. So of those different labs and the techniques and styles of cooking you learned, what did you start to gravitate towards? Well... I don't want to say nothing. Um, I always <laughs> loved Cajun and Creole cuisine. So I kind of pushed myself in those directions. Like if there was an opportunity to do something Cajun, Creole, I wanted to do that. I just didn't go to school with that much experience prior. So it's really interesting. Right now we talk a lot about like cultural appropriation and what you think you should be cooking. And at the time at 18, I thought like, sure, you know, I'm, I'm a white guy. I've never been to like New Orleans. I've never eaten Cajun or Creole cuisine. Like, I don't know why that I was drawn to that. And the thought that I could just like read one book and like leave culinary school and open up a Cajun restaurant. Like that's where my head was at mm. when I was 18, you know? So I don't know that I had really direction in culinary school. Some people did, but I just kind of wanted to get in there and like dip my toes in everything and kind of see what I was drawn to. And then I got out of culinary school and I've literally never worked in like a Cajun Creole restaurant and that just kind of <laughs> fell by the wayside. The appropriation thing I think is interesting. Let's say you did want to open a Cajun and Creole restaurant. What do you think it would take for you to open a restaurant like that in an authentic way? I think you really need to go work somewhere that's doing it, work with those people and give it your all. I mean, I love Mexican food and Mexican cooking. And you look at like Rick Bayless in Chicago, and I think he's thought of as one of the pioneers of maybe pioneers isn't even the right word of Mexican cooking in the United States, but he's someone I love, but you know, he would close his restaurants every year and take his staff on field trips to a different region of Mexico. And he really wanted mm -hmm. to make sure that he was representing the cuisine and the culture and I don't think that's always the case, but I think this is a relatively new thing. A lot of people went to culinary school and just got out and had a love for something and just opened a restaurant, whether it be a, a Creole or a Mexican or a Japanese restaurant. And now some of that's coming under scrutiny. And it's like, I think if the intent is there and you're really honoring the cuisine and the traditions, then yeah, it's fine. I mean, I've been to a lot of great quote unquote ethnic restaurants run by people who are not of that culture. But I do think there's like a fine line there. It's when you come out and you kind of like perpetrate yourself as the expert, right? Like if I were to come out and say like, oh, I've opened the best Creole restaurant in Maryland. Uh, I don't know that I should go there, you know? Hmm. 
And it's also how do you define best, right? Who gets to say it's the best? Is it is it by popular vote? Is it critics? Like, how do you see that? That's really hard because like, so I love Mexican food and I make my tortillas from scratch. I buy heirloom masa from a company called Macienda that's bringing in from Mexico. You know, I bought a tortilla press for like $120 that this like Mexican woman in Mexico uses. I use heritage breed pigs, like when I use pork and my tacos from a local farm. And I know that there's a lot of taquerias in town run by people from Mexico who are just buying like generic poor quality tortillas from Cisco and using like commodity Mm. beef from Smithfield. Like, should I say that my tacos are better than theirs? Like, I don't know. That's Mm. a, that's a very fine line, but I'm using better quality products. And I think putting more care into it than some of the people who've been doing this their whole life. But again, Mm. I don't feel like I should come out like in my marketing and say like, my tacos are better than this taqueria because people are going to come at me and say, how can you say that? You know, he's Mexican. He's 50 years old. He's been doing it forever. But I don't know Mm. if I, if I, as a white American went to France, does that mean instantly I'm making better American food than anyone who's living in France? I don't know. Mm. It's a very touchy subject. And I think as you start getting into the marketing of your business, it can be kind of controversial. I'm curious about your own travels, because it sounds like part of what Uh, you think of as legitimacy within cooking is primary sources, like going to a place, understanding the people, understanding how people have cooked something over generations and collecting that kind of evidence. You've done a lot of traveling around the States, right? And what kinds of, I guess, food practices or cultures really piqued your interest? Yeah, I've lived in six or seven states. Let's say I've lived in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Minnesota, Uh, Washington State, Pennsylvania, and now Maryland. So I've been around and I've traveled a lot. I just love diving into what the local cuisine is. You know, when I lived in Seattle, there's a very Pacific Northwest style, you know, a lot of obviously things like salmon, a lot of seafood. Their seafood is very different than New England seafood. It seemed to me a lot of places were doing like a cleaner, more refined, not overly contrived dishes. It just seemed like they were letting their ingredients shine. And I really loved that. But I think you do need to visit a place if you're going to start cooking that cuisine and then spend as much time as you can in it. Let's say you're you're visiting a new city. What's your approach to finding the best food spots? There? It's usually people I know and have wanted to go there. I mean, I seem to know chefs in every city that I want to go to. I'm usually just going to post on Facebook and say like, hey, going to Denver, like who do I know in Denver or where are you guys eating? And because most of my friends are chefs or people in the food world, they're going to point me in the right direction. And I love Eater. You know, Eater is one of these websites. They have their national website, but they have one for every city. So like, you know, put in Eater Boston and they're going to have like what the 38 hot restaurants are right now or the 38 places with the best brunch or something, you know, along those mm-hmm. lines. I love that. So after culinary school, did you get a job right away? Yeah, it was probably within a month, uh, but I ended up cooking in a retirement community because similarly to what I found when I was a teenager was it was hard to get a job out of culinary school. New England's a weird place. Like I love it, but I feel like there's an old mentality. And, you know, I was interviewing at all these places in Marlboro and they all rested on like their signature secret recipes, right? So like I remember going to this place, it was the best restaurant in town. 
and I wanted to work there. And I just remember having this interview and them saying, well, what's to say you're not just here to steal our clam chowder recipe? It's like, what? I, like I could, <laughs> but, th- but that was a thing. It's like, I could literally care less. Like I, I want to work here <laughs> because you're a great restaurant and I want to work at the best and just like couldn't convince people. And I found this over and over. And I, I don't know if this was Massachusetts, but I think it's an old school mentality. Like I've worked with some older chefs and they talk about the days of you know, secret recipes, these places that were kind of built around having like one or two signature things. And they were very Mm. protective. I mean, I had a chef who worked for me as a sous chef. He was older and he said, oh yeah. He said, I worked at a place where only the chef had the recipe to like these three things. And he literally Mm. made those three things and no one else was allowed to make them. Like that's crazy to me. Does that happen a lot? I think that's, I think that's an older thing. I don't think you're seeing that as much now. Like if you only have three recipes and you're like banking that your whole business is going to be built on those three secret recipes. Like it doesn't seem like a good business plan to me. Yeah. It seems pretty risky. Yeah. Um, so I, I ended up working at a retirement community and that was my first, you know, foray into like contract food. And that kind of put me on a path to not working in restaurants. So what was that like? What was the work like? You know, we had, hundreds of people, like 600 people who lived there and they were there, you know, they lived there. So you had to do breakfast, lunch and dinner for 600 people every single day. And we're open every, you know, holiday, every day of the year. But the nice thing that comes along with that is you're working for a company that has some money. You know, I was paid better than most of my friends who got jobs in restaurants. I was given is just a cook when I started. I wasn't even like a sous chef two weeks paid vacation and 401k. And I had every other weekend off and it was a really good work-life balance. You know, we served dinner starting at like five o'clock and by seven o'clock you were cleaning up and and out of there about 7.30. I mean, that's better than working till two in the morning. So at that point, didn't even really care about getting out of there and going to work in a restaurant. Yeah. I mean, if your customers are in bed by like 9 p.m., you've got the the evening to yourself. Oh yeah. You could still go out. I mean, Saturday night, I'm out at 7.30. I can go home, get changed, get dressed, drive an hour into Boston and still go out. Loved it. (laughs) That's awesome. How long did you stay at that job? So I was there for two and a half years. And my wife, I had met in that time while I was working there. And she was still in culinary school, the same one that I went to. Mm. And she told me she wanted to move to Seattle when she graduated. So that's what we did when she was done with school. We uh, went to Seattle. I'd never been there, but she had relatives there. I'd never even visited and just trusted that it would be a cool place to live. And it was. And we spent the next couple of years out there. And where did you end up working in Seattle? another retirement community. So similarly, I mean, I don't know. I think it's just chef egos and I can't deal with that. I remember wanting to work at this place called The Painted Table and they were the most highly rated restaurant in town. And I remember sending the chef my resume and he called me for an interview while I was still in Providence living. And he said, oh, well, you know, why do you want to be a chef? And I told him why I wanted to be a chef. I don't remember what it was. And then he said something like, well, I don't know if I believe you. And if and when you get out here, you really decide you have it in you to come work for me, like maybe look me up and was just kind of a jerk about it. And I found, yeah, I found that a couple of places. I went and interviewed at the Space Needle restaurant and just the vibe was like off. And, you know, maybe it's because I'm kind of like quiet and introverted and I don't like conflict and that kind of environment. It just wasn't Mm -hmm. working for me. And there was a, a retirement community there. That was looking for a chef. It was uh, the residents were all Jewish, so it was actually a kosher kitchen, which was really cool. And they brought me on as the assistant food service director slash executive chef, and I was there for two years. And I got to do some really cool stuff, learned kosher cooking, and again, really good benefits, work life balance. And I did that the whole time I lived in Seattle. 
as someone who's never worked in the food industry, except for like volunteering as a bartender once, um, my impression of the food industry, a lot of it comes from watching shows like Chef's Table or whatnot. And the chef ego thing really shines through or like Gordon Ramsay. It just seeming like the whole food industry is very cutthroat. It sounds like you kind of got to stay away from that at least for the first half of your career. Yeah, I did. I say I've literally never worked in a restaurant. Like if you don't count Burger King <laughs> and a small stint I did at Boston Market, I've never worked in a restaurant, but I've been in food service since 1992. So, uh, you know, that's a long time to be in food and not actually work in a restaurant. I just kept having these things where I had interviews or, you know, I talked to the chef and the vibe wasn't there, or the benefits weren't there and just decided to go another route. And that's why I have Chefs Without Restaurants now as both an organization and a podcast. I'm just like over restaurant cooking, but the ego thing is totally out of control and not my jam. When I first heard Chefs Without Restaurants, I was like, hmm, okay, maybe home chefs. Like, I, I wasn't sure, like, what that meant. And now having listened to your show a little bit, you know, it includes catering, retirement homes, hospitals, like, all these places that aren't restaurants but require some kind of food service. At one point, you also worked for IKEA. I did work for IKEA. I loved it. They're, they're a fantastic company to work for. And I'd always heard about how great a company and their, and their benefits. And we moved to the Philadelphia region. So in Conshock in Pennsylvania is the home office for Ikea. So when they came to the U.S., that's where they set up shop. So not only did we have the benefit of working at the store, but we had the North American home office. So we did like most of the R&D out of there. So whenever mm -hmm. they were looking to, to take something nationally, we would get to launch it in our store. Uh, we would go and help open other stores across the country, which is really cool. So it wasn't just about meatballs. Um, you know, <laughs> we did things like we had a formal night where we did like Scandinavian buffets and we brought in a band and for like $10, you could dance and then like come to this buffet. And we tried like wow. lobster night there where, you know, their price point is usually like the $3.99 to $5.99, but we were piloting like $7 to $12.99 dinners there just to see if it works. So we got to try some different stuff, but you learn so much about how to run a business, HR, marketing, you know, really, if you want to run a business, like that's a phenomenal place to go work. So it's not just cooking pre-made meatballs. <laughs> I mean, they're good meatballs. Yeah, but, they uh, are. Yeah. I've eaten tons of meatballs. Yeah. And the lobster, that's probably one of the most affordable lobster meals you could get. The, yeah. Like, well, you know, it all goes down to lost leaders, which do you know what a loss leader is like to get people in the store? Like is a really good deal. Even if they sell it at loss, I wrote this article online about how Ikea used their food as a loss leader. And I didn't think it was a big deal, but it got picked up online and ended up on an Australian TV show where they talked about it, it was like the view, but in Australia <laughs> and they quoted me. And then that got picked up by like the New York post and it kind of went viral. And it's called like how Ikea tricks people into thinking their furniture is cheaper or some something like that. And I had like these people from Ikea, like reaching out to me, like via LinkedIn. I'm like, I, like I was just talking on the internet. I didn't think it was going to be this big deal <laughs> wow. um, because, you know, it's like, yes, $3.99 for meatballs or like a 99 cent breakfast. Like they're losing money on that deal. It's to get you in the store to buy thousands of dollars in furniture. Like it doesn't seem like rocket science, but people had their mind blown, I guess, when they read that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could, if you were really cheap about it, you could just go to Ikea for a meal and like use the play place. <laughs> Lots of people do. Believe me, we have regulars. Who, 90, breakfast at the time was 99 cents. And you got wow. eggs and sausage or bacon and a cup of coffee for 99 cents. Like we had plenty of regulars who showed up there every day and just came and got their breakfast and bounced. 
I mean, Ikea makes plenty in furniture, so. <laughs> yes, they sure do. Side note, I learned that Ikea is actually a nonprofit. I don't know if you knew this, but it's owned by some nonprofit foundation, like holding company. I'm always uh, interested in how that works. Like you just have to spend all of your money to be a nonprofit, right? Like the CEO and the board (laughs) and everyone gets tons of money and they can just like, as long as they keep the money going out the door, you're technically a nonprofit. They used to say the same thing. We joked about Johnson & Wales, that they were not for profit. And we'd see them buy like a $300,000 clock tower at one of the dorms. They're like, we're always like Johnson & Wales, not for profit. You know, like why are you paying $40,000? to go here and you're spending 300000 on a clock tower. Right. Like, where does that money come from? So after Ikea, at some point, you got into a job that was super high stress. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah. So I moved to Maryland and worked in another retirement community. And it was a good job, but it was, I mean, it was huge. So we had 750 residents there and spread out across campus. We had five distinct dining venues which is way more than any ad ever worked at. Uh, And I was just in charge of one of them. But after a year and a half, I was promoted to be campus executive chef, a position they had never had. So now Mm -hmm. I had to oversee everything. So they moved up, you know, one of my sous chefs below me. So now I have, you know, like a chef manager in each building, but I'm having to spend my whole time running across campus, overseeing, you know, like five dining venues at the same time. So at dinner, all five were open and I had 125 employees. And it was just a lot. And I think the challenge is, is I went to school to be a chef. You know, I consider myself professional. I worked a lot of places where I had peers who are professionals. But when you have a venue of that size with so many employees, like there are people there who just need a job, you know, especially as you talk about people who are in like wait staff or dishwashers, because we are a retirement community, you couldn't get tips. So like our wait staff were teenagers, you know, so when you have kids literally starting at 14, like 14 to 18 years old, like learning to manage them when they really don't care about being there is tough. But I also had a lot Mm. of cooks who didn't care. I mean, my cooking crew were mostly untrained. And you just had people who were not the right kind of people. And it was really hard and really stressful to come in every day and not know what you're getting into or dealing with, you know, I had a cook who was a drug dealer, you know, Mm. and dealing drugs on on campus. And like, I had to fire him and I'm getting scared that I'm going to get murdered. Like the week after we fired him, he literally beat someone with a gun and was thrown in prison. Like that could have happened to me when I fired him. Like, you know, that's not the environment I wanted to be in. I wanted to be surrounded by people who loved to cook, loved hospitality and wanted to serve food. And I was just found more and more like every day I was dealing with the hassle of these people who just needed a job and could really care less. And and that wow. was really hard for me. That's crazy to go into, you know, a job thinking it's one thing and you get to cook for people and be creative and then to have to deal with drug dealers and, and guns. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, wasn't a fan. But you were still at that job for a number of years. I was there right? for 10 years. You know, wow. it's someplace that I kind of thought maybe I'd end up staying. But, you know, I got a new boss. She was nice enough, but I felt like she was holding me back. I mean, like literally one day she literally said to me, you're not allowed to leave until I retire. Ha ha. You know, and uh, I was so good at doing my job that I felt like she knew that and didn't want to let me leave. So I would be applying for other jobs elsewhere within the company and I wouldn't even mm. get callbacks for them. You know, and I felt oh, like wow. there was some level of like internal squashing it so that she would be okay there. And then just, you know, things like 
not getting the raises I was promised. You know, I took a promotion and then the money never came that they promised me. And then I'm like stuck in the job and I can't back out. And just things like that, like the corporate red tape and stuff started to wear on me and it was creating more stress than it needed to. And then I had one like really horrible employee and she's the one who pushed me to quit. So one day I just like had enough because I had started my business, my personal chef business. I had started at some point on the side and I knew I wanted to leave at some point. And then I just hit this point one day where I felt like I had enough clients and I couldn't be here anymore. I was having anxiety attacks. I was having like physical ailments, like stomach problems, jaw tightness, headaches, just from the stress of being there. And I'm like, I got to go. Like whatever I do is going to be better than this. And, you know, I have my own business to start. So let's go. And just one day I put in my notice and was out. Good for you for getting out of there and also for doing the prep work of building up this business. So yeah, let's let's talk about Perfect Little Bites. How did that opportunity come about? Yeah, so when I was still in Pennsylvania, I worked at a catering company and they only did big events and they loved to do corporate things. Like the owners had season tickets to like the Eagles, like they didn't want to work weekends. They wanted to do Monday through Friday type gigs and big gigs. And every once in a while, someone would call and say, hey, you know, it's my anniversary. Will you come cook for my wife and myself? And they always said, no, that's not our thing. You know, it's not really worth their time and effort. And at one point, I don't know why they just said to me, would you want to do this? Like, you can keep all the money. You can use our kitchen, represent our business. It'll be good marketing for us. So I said, sure. So I started tinkering with that. And I started going cooking for, you know, dinners for two and four in people's homes through them. And I said to my wife, like, is this a thing? Could I be a caterer cooking for like two to 20 people, run like super low overhead, like basically have my own restaurant, right? Make my own menu, make what I want and give people a restaurant experience. And this was now 15, 16 years ago. So no one was really doing Mm -hmm. it. I mean, there's still not a lot now, but, you know, bringing all the china and linens and setting the table and creating this really awesome almost like you're going out to eat. And I just started doing it there. And I didn't do it a lot or that long, but then I kind of filed that away. And then when we moved to Frederick, Maryland, you know, Frederick had a booming food scene. Volt had just opened, you know, Brian Voltaggio was on the show Top Chef. And I was also about an hour from both DC and Baltimore. I'm like, if man, I bet this business would kill here. You know, we have a good food scene. We're so close to big metro areas. Let me try it. And this was in 2010. So I started there in 2007 at my job, three years in, getting a little stressed. I'm like, I'm going to plan my exit strategy and just started tinkering with it and going out and doing dinners. You start with friends, neighbors, family. Hey, you know, can I come cook for you? I'll do it at cost. I just kind of want to get my feet wet and see how this goes. Maybe leave me a nice review if this works well. And I did that and I really enjoyed it. And I was ready to go sooner. And then my wife got pregnant with our twins who were born in 2012. So, you know, I'd been doing this for two years and I think I was about ready to go. And it's like, oh, hold the phone. Like now we're not going to mm-hmm. have health insurance. We're going to go down to a one income family for a while. Maybe not the time to go. But that gave me another few years to kind of figure out my strategy, work on my marketing. And I kept going. And then once my wife was ready to go back to work, she was able to get benefits. We knew that it was time for me to go. And then just it all kind of fell in line that that one day where I'd had enough, I'm like, I'm just going to do this. I didn't, my wife knew I was going to quit at some point, but she didn't know that was going to be the day. So when I came home and told her, I gave my notice today, you know, it's an interesting conversation, but she was super supportive. The personal chef thing, I feel like I only heard of that term like in the last few years, but over COVID, I've seen all these little like picnic companies pop up. Have you seen those? I haven't seen any picnic companies. Is that a big thing? Okay. I think for like younger, like millennials and Gen Z, it's like grab six or eight of your friends and, or like a 
a, a date idea and like, we'll set up a picnic for you, do all the food, bring all the tables and linens and stuff. Some of them are branded as like rosé picnics. So it's very like Instagram friendly. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different ways you can do it. And that's the really great thing. I've always positioned myself as high end. Like my price point starts at $100 a person. So I don't know if people Mm -hmm. are paying $100 a person for picnics. Probably not. But that's my place in the market. Like I decided early on, I've had 20 plus years of experience. I've worked in high end places. I think I can command that. There's a lot of people doing $30, $40 dinners. There's room for that in the market too. There's people who do meal prep. I don't do that at all, but there's a lot of personal chefs who come in your house and plan a week's worth of meals and leave them for you in the fridge and freezer with reheating Mm. instructions. There's a place for that. You know, there's been a lot of chefs finding a way to make it work. So was your personal chef business, was that your creative outlet while you were working your day job? So my day job was actually pretty creative. You know, I think people have misconceptions about what a retirement community is. But I mean, these people pay a ton of money, the one I was at. And they were still traveling the world. You know, people would take a a river cruise through Europe and and they know fine cuisine and stuff. I was managing over $1 million a year food budget. So we could do really awesome stuff. So we were getting you know, heritage breed pigs from a local farm and butchering them in house. We had a sous vide program. We had a cocktail program. We had a bar I was in charge of. So I was creating cocktails and buying high end stuff. So I was actually using the job to test recipes for my business. So it was amazing R&D that I could go into the job and say, huh, I've really been thinking about like putting this on my menu. Let's see how it works. And then I had the flexibility to just say we're putting on the menu as a chef special for the next two days and really work with my team there to get the kinks out. And then I could just take it as like a thing and go. So that's why I didn't mind staying where I was. I mean, when I left, I had all these recipes that I had been doing for a decade there. But with Perfect Little Bites, yes. I mean, I only wanted to really do creative stuff. I tell people, like, if you are the type of person who loves, like, Outback and Olive Garden, I'm probably not the guy for you. It's like, you don't go to McDonald's if you want pizza. But I think people think with, like, a personal chef and a caterer, they can and will make anything for you. So some people come and say, you know, I want an Italian dinner and I want you know, pasta. I say, well, I'm not really great at making pasta, but they think that because you're a personal chef, you can and will be making fresh pasta for them. And like, that's not something I'm great at. And that's not something Mm. I really want to do. But it's really interesting the way people think about like what a personal chef is supposed to be doing. So let's say I lived in Maryland and my fiance and I wanted to invite you over for an anniversary dinner or something. How would the the process go of selecting the menu and, and day of? So I send you a questionnaire that's like, Five or six questions. It's foods and cuisines you love, foods and cuisines you hate, any dietary restrictions, scale of one to 10, how adventurous are you, scale of one to 10, how much spice. And that's about it. And that's where I start. And you fill that out and send it back to me and tell me all that. And then I just pull from a master menu. So I have spring, summer, fall, winter menus. And they're like seven pages of Word documents organized to like soups, salads, apps, entrees. And I just start filtering. Okay. Like you don't like Mexican food, like all that's coming out. You don't like spice. So all the spice comes out. So then what you get from me is like a two page menu selections to choose from and say, pick a couple starters, pick an entree, pick sides, pick dessert. But I pepper that with some chef specials. So I used to give the customer full control and say, it's a five course dinner, pick five courses. And now I tell them, It's like a four course dinner, pick four, and then I bring the fifth course because a lot of people are safe, right? Like you're spending $100 a person for a dinner. Not a lot of people want to get that thing that they don't know what it is, even though I'm comfortable that they're going to love it. So giving myself some creative freedom so people aren't just getting like crab cake and strip steak or filet. I want to have some interesting things. I feel like that's part of the fun of, of having a personal chef too, is letting them be creative and surprise you with something new. 
Yeah, but not everyone's really open to that. Usually, I have a lot of repeat customers. And it's usually like the second to third dinner where they get there. It's like, okay, I know your style. Everything you've made has been great. Like, let's do a chef's choice dinner. But it's usually not the first one. And definitely not with bigger parties. Those get to be challenging. I'm, I'm working on, mm. you know a couple at the moment right now where you have like eight to 10 people coming and the host is like really open to everything, but they've got a bunch of people who are maybe more particular mm. and trying to figure out like what's going to be the most universally accepted menu, I think is where it gets challenging. There are some okay. things like I love scallops, but they are super challenging to make for large parties because you're individually pan searing them. So if I have a party for four people and you're getting six scallops, each like that's not a big deal but if you're 15 people like i i just can't do that if you're 10 to 15 people i'm not doing individual steaks like i'm not going to pan sear steaks it's going to be like a whole roasted beef tenderloin or a, a strip loin or something like that that's going to go in the oven because i just can't be doing all the individual so i do have to tailor the menu around how many people are coming that makes a lot of sense how how did business go over covid it was up and down. It was really weird. I had my best months and my worst months. So I was completely unemployed for 11 weeks, which was scary. You know, the mm. uh, March, the beginning of March 2020 was amazing. I thought it was going to be my best month ever. And then, you know, we shut it down on the 13th or whatever. I had to cancel, I think, six events I had the rest of the month. Uh, and then I didn't work. My first party back was Mother's Day in May. I did a husband and wife and their daughter, and that was my first back. And then it started to pick up, you know, over the summer as people were having events outdoors, they were more mm -hmm. comfortable doing that as people figured out what a pod was and, you know, getting together <laughs> with just their close friends. And then I started to get bigger parties than I've ever had because I started doing these like micro weddings. So, you know, it was a 150 person wedding that's now 15 people and caterers wouldn't touch it because it was too small for them. So they had to look at personal chefs for their options. So I started doing all these like 15, 20 person weddings and I was making some crazy money. And then, mm -hmm. you know. As winter came and COVID numbers went back up and people stopped having outdoors, it kind of died down. I lost all of my holiday parties. You know, December, I'm usually doing corporate parties for like 15, 20. All of those canceled out on me. And, you know, my New Year's Eve was four people. I have a group the past three years I've done and they're 15 people and they weren't getting together for it. So I just had a four person New Year's Eve party. You know, it's money, but I would have liked to have those 15 people. And then this past, you know, spring was good and early summer was starting to get good. June was literally my most profitable month in 10 years of doing this. But wow. now I think with Delta variant and all that, people are getting scared again. And July and August have kind of started to go down. So I'm getting a little worried now. But, you know, it's mm -hmm. just one of these things you have to ride out and figure out what it's going to be like. Wow. I've been trying to avoid the news. I try not to Google COVID numbers and whatnot, but it sounds like your business is directly tied to that up and down graph. Oh, a hundred percent. You know, and just seeing what everyone in the food world's doing, you know, I have a lot of friends who run restaurants and now the conversation is like, do we require proof of either a negative test or vaccination to come in the restaurant? And that's become a very hot topic on social media. You know, I'll have friends saying effective this week, you have to have a a vaccination card to come in. And some people say, yay, now I feel safe eating at your place. And some people say like, I'm never coming to your restaurant again. So mm. it's become quite polarizing. Yeah. So these days you're doing perfect little bites, whatever jobs come in. And then you're also running the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. How did that podcast and community come about? So once I had some success, people were always saying to me, how did you do this? Can, can I buy you a coffee or a beer? I want to be a personal chef or at least start it. So I would meet with them and that kind of thing's time consuming. You know, I wasn't charging like a consulting fee and, you know, you keep telling them the same story over and over. And then 
I would have people contact me to work on, let's say, this Friday night, but I'm already booked. Well, what do I do with that? Oh, I know some people are personal chefs. Like, maybe I'll pass that around to them. And at some point, I just thought, like, why don't we have an online community where we can kill two birds with one stone? Like, for those who want to become a personal chef, you know, we've got a Facebook group. You can come on there and you can ask how to become a personal chef. And it's not just me taking the time. There would be a couple members. And I thought it would be like five or six who could kind of share advice. But we could also have it be like a gig sharing site. So, you know, if I can't do a job, who wants to work Friday? Here's the details. And I literally thought it would be like four or five people that I knew. And I posted on my personal Facebook page that I was going to do this. But I'm friends with Laura Hayes, who's the food editor at the DC City Paper. And she's like, this is amazing. Can I talk to you tomorrow? I'd love to have this go out in Thursday's City Paper. I was like, okay, you know, but you know, there was no social media for it. There was a website that said under construction. It was just like an idea. (laughs) So I talked to her about what I thought this would be. And it went in the city paper and I quickly made like a Facebook uh, public page and I had 200 people follow the page that weekend. And I had no idea what it was going to be. So it's been an evolution and it still is like, what do you need from it? Like, I know what value I get out, but some people want to come and learn, you know, their food truck broke down and they don't know anything about it and who can help me fix the compressor on it. Like I don't even have a food truck, but that's what works for them. Or they're doing a food festival and they just want to hire someone for $15 an hour next Saturday. So it's continued to grow. But one guy in Frederick has a food truck called Pizza Llama Pizza. And he was helping me on a lot of gigs because another thing I wanted to do is hire people in the community to help. So if I had a party for 15, I can say, hey, you know, Andrew, do you want to come do a dinner? I'll pay you, you know, 50 bucks an hour to come work with me. And one night we're driving back from an event and he said, why aren't you doing a podcast? And you know, my answer was because I don't know how to do a podcast. Like I barely know how to do social media and websites and all that. And he said, well, I'll, I'll co-host it with you if you want. Let's start a podcast. So that's kind of where the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast came from. So that was October 2019, we started talking about it and we decided November 2019 to start the podcast. So he actually came on and Andrew was the host of the show. I was more co-host. I did the technical stuff, editing through Audacity, and I used editing in the lightest sense because I didn't know (laughs) anything about it. Our first episodes are not fantastic. We heard a lot of feedback about how the audio quality was terrible, but we started the show. And uh, we did it in person. We found a brewery that let us record there, which was good and bad. I love that they let us record there. The acoustics in a brick brewery are not conducive to audio recording. And if you don't know how to edit at all, I don't recommend that to anyone. But then when COVID (laughs) started, Andrew had to duck out. He had his food truck. His business was down. He had to let go employees and just said, you know, I can't be doing this. And then we weren't doing any in-person interviews. So... I decided, well, you know, I love this. And then I became unemployed, right? So I'm like, well, I'm sitting at home. I'm going to figure out how to do this online. So March 2020, I took over the show by myself, no co-host. And then I said, well, this is kind of cool because I can reach out to people all across the country. Now they don't have to live in D.C. People had started to learn how to use Zoom. I was like, well, let's just start doing them online. And there was a big learning curve to doing it online. But once I hit my rhythm, I was like, yeah, I don't think I'm ever going to change. I think I'm going to continue doing them online. I don't really think I want a co-host, actually. And uh, I've loved it. So I've been doing the show since since then that way. So it sounds like you're still doing a lot, right? With your business and now the podcast and running the community, plus being a member of your family and being a parent. How do you now manage to stay on top of everything while maintaining your mental health? 
That's really hard. I have a little bit of an ADHD. Now I'm, I'm totally self-diagnosed and not medi- medicated. So this is my own <laughs> diagnosis. But just knowing how I am, that I'm like all over the map. And as all these things are coming in, it does get challenging for me. I have to make lists for myself and put things in my calendar. But I'm still not really great at like time blocking because my schedule, my work schedule is so much in flux. You know, being a personal chef, like Last week, I had two days where I worked, and then I could have a four-day week where I work. So I just have to be really flexible, kind of. I start with what's the most important things this week and kind of put it at the top of the list and work down. And then things that are time-sensitive. So my podcast comes out on Tuesday. That means Monday is usually the day of getting it ready. Like right before we did this talk today, like I finished up the audio. I'm finishing the show notes. That has to get done today. But other than that, things are are pretty flexible. Do you make sure to have enough time to spend time with your kids and your wife? Yeah, well, that comes first, I think, which is where the challenge is. You know, like my kids' birthdays were last Mm -hmm. week. So if it's going to be three or four days of having birthday stuff and fun with them, that's what we're going to do. And then I have to find a way squeezing in other stuff, which is where I don't love it, but there are some 2 a.m. nights where I'm answering emails and doing things. I'm amazed, though, the amount of times I'll post a photo on Instagram at like 2 in the morning and the amount of people who are also on liking that or commenting on that (laughs) at the same time. It's like, I guess we're all on that same time schedule. Yeah. Or they're on the West Coast. Possibly. Yeah. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. Is there anything else you wanted to leave with us? I mean, business-wise, I'd say like, if you've gotten an idea, just like start trying it. I think so many people think it's either or as someone who side hustled for a good five to seven years. Like I think if you have a business that you want to start, I'd say just find a way. Can you do it part time on the side and see if you even like it? See if it's even feasible. Like if you're in a job where you're maybe getting frustrated, like don't wait till it gets so bad that you have to quit. And then you're starting from scratch, like just start now. But for me, I have to say like, your health is everything. And I really didn't understand how much mental health impacted physical health. The fact that like, I had all these physical ailments that I was spending way more money than I needed to, to get tests done to just tell me that like, it's just stress, you know, (laughs) like, so I, I say like, whether that's a gratefulness practice or daily meditation or exercise, or just like, watching something funny on Netflix, like whatever is going to take that edge off. Don't let your career be so consuming that it like makes you physically sick. Mm -hmm. I think your journey has been a great example that you, you consciously chose career steps that, you know, gave you benefits where you had good work-life balance, maybe until (laughs) the last, last number of years. But yeah, I'm amazed that you've been able to turn that around and now build this thriving business. So appreciate you coming on the show to share your story. If listeners are interested in learning more about you and what you're working on, where can they find you? Pretty much everywhere. I am both Perfect Little Bites and Chefs Without Restaurants. So very active on Facebook and Instagram. I do have the website, chefswithoutrestaurants.com. And Perfect Little Bites, it's also a food blog. So if you want to learn about cooking, check out recipes, go to perfectlittlebites.com. I'm really open to sharing everything I know. So like you can just send me an email at perfectlittlebites at gmail.com. And it could be, I'm looking for an amazing recipe for lasagna. Like what do you got? And I'll send it back to you. I might ping you for that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm here for it. Thank you, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. I'd love to hear what you got out of this episode. Take a picture of where you're listening from and tag me on a story at Inside Out with Jane. I'll be back here next Tuesday. And in the meantime, chat with you online. Bye.